This episode on urban homesteading with Rachel Kaplan is the conversation that started me down the road of what the show has become known for. Long format, interview-driven, guest-focused conversations that you won't hear anywhere else. It's also the first interview I ever recorded for the Permaculture Podcast. So unless you were here in the early days of the show, or took a deep dive into the archives at thepermaculturepodcast.com in the years since, it's one you're likely hearing for the first time. Listening to Rachel again, her words hold as much meaning to our practices now as when they were recorded more than a decade ago. If you're interested in permaculture in and around cities, or are looking to take your practices and orient what works in the home and garden towards our communities, relax, take some time, and enjoy this interview with Rachel Kaplan. I'll join you again after. I started being a gardener in city environments about 15 or 20 years ago. Everywhere I lived, I was growing things, and I come from a family of farmers and gardeners, so it's kind of in my experience to take care of the land and think about it. About 10 years ago, I was pregnant and I had a daughter, right around the time of 9-11. So things started changing pretty seriously in our country at that time, going from bad to worse. And we moved at that time from San Francisco to a much smaller town called Point Reyes Station, which is a rural town in the Bay Area. And when I was home with my infant daughter, I really started learning more about growing food and preserving food and just started really picking up some of these heirloom skills. And then I did study permaculture. I took a certification course with Penny Livingston in Bolinas, California. So I really became more and more informed and aware of what the discipline of permaculture was at that time. And it was inspiring. It seemed like a solution to a lot of our problems. It was a good news story for me. And it gave me a lot of new ways to look at kind of the the destruction that was happening and ways to be part of the repair of the world. So it really spoke to me in that way. Did it speak to you because it was like a take action positive experience, the entire permaculture design course and the information that was being presented? Or was there something else to it? Well, there was the take action part. There was also just the spiritual part of being more connected to the seasons and the cycles and to the land and being part of nature instead of being apart from nature and really starting to think more about how to live in a generative way instead of participating in the degenerative systems that are all around us. So it it was practical and physical, but it was also spiritual and moral. And of course, the way permaculture is based on ethics and principles that are both things that you can feel are true, but that you can also put into action really speaks to me which is why in the book we talk about the ethics and the principles. We want people to understand that these are high ideals that we can learn to embody in lots of different ways from how we take care of our kitchen scraps to our personal waste to our relationships with other people to growing plants and trees. And it's so inclusive. It just has so much in it that one could spend one's whole life studying and learning and studying some more. So that's exciting, I think. It was one of the parts when I was learning permaculture and taking my PDC, my one instructor said that we could spend this entire course talking about nothing but art and still be practicing permaculture. Yep. It's one of the things that I know drew me to it because there's so much. There's always something new to learn and all these different areas we can focus on. Well, and Ruby and I come from a background as community-based artists. Ruby ran a beautiful puppeteering company called Wiseful Puppet Intervention. 
which was an environmental justice puppet company, really, and did a lot of beautiful political action. And I was also a director and a dancer, kind of performing artist, and started doing large-scale events and happenings with big groups of people. So we really come from this community-based activist background. And both of us got a little burned out in the art world itself and started feeling like we were speaking to the same people over and over, the same messages. And we got a little bit worn down. And so there was some stuff in permaculture and sort of following some of our interests in other things like botany and herbal medicine making and growing and, you know, a whole host of other studies that really led us towards permaculture and towards understanding the way all these things connect in the bigger picture. So, yeah. Art is part of it, and healing is part of it. We both also have backgrounds as body-centered healers, somatic practitioners, and so there's something really similar about helping people heal the injuries to their bodies as there is to healing the injuries to the earth. It's really the same. It's the same practice, just small canvas, big canvas, you know? Is that body-centered healing how you and Ruby met, or was it from your artwork, or...? We met about 25 years ago in San Francisco's Mission District because we were artists, and we lived in this artist-activist community, and we shared communal houses and dinners and circles, and we were just part of the same community and went to each other's shows and helped each other as artists, and so that's where we started together. And of all the people in that community, she and I are the people who have evolved the most similarly towards this homesteading lifestyle. So we've known each other quite a long time and have gone through many different phases in our lives together. And that's what brought the two of you together to write this book then, as the two of you were moving down that homesteading path? We were, and she had founded her Institute for Urban Homesteading in Oakland, which was very successful. Her timing was excellent, and people were hungry for the information, and she had gathered so much information. She's such a powerful teacher. And I called her and said, hey, do you want to write a book about this with me? And she's like, oh, I really don't. But... There's all these publishing houses that had already approached her to say, would you write a book about this? Because she had gotten just so much attention for what she was doing. So together we decided to talk to the publishing houses and see if any of the options they had made any sense for us. And one of them did, and we eventually chose to work with that publishing house. And as time went on, it got clear that it was really important for me to write the book and for Ruby to be responsible for the images, that that was really the best alignment of our skills and our desires, and so that's how we did it. Okay, that's perfect. You answered one of my next questions about this was how the breakdown was for what went into the book. Yeah, she's really a strong visual artist and my skill as a writer, so we really we played to our strengths, and the original art in the book is hers, and the writing is mine, and she managed the photographs and took many, many of those pictures that you see in the book. Well, it came together perfectly. I really, I mean, it's a beautiful book. Yeah, we're pleased with it. We think it looks great. Yeah, some of my favorite publishers are like DK and some of the others with their gardening books because there are these gorgeous pictures that show you everything that you need to know. And it's all tied together very cohesively. And I really, I, I love this book. Thank you. We love it. And as for the book itself and everything that you've written, one of my favorite things that you include in this are your principles of urban homesteading. I really feel that principles are core to a lot of the work that we do. And if someone can learn a basic set of principles that they can kind of put into action without having to think about them, that they're kind of intrinsic to their being, after a while that it can allow them to do their work very simply and to move forward. And that you included these urban principles are just great. They're simple. They're straightforward. But they really embody a lot of that urban and city regrowth and that need for personal reliance within the homestead. How did you come to those? Were they something that just developed through your own work over time? 
input from other folks or? As I say in the book, you know, we did all these interviews with people because we felt that it was important that this wasn't just a book about what Ruby and I do in our backyard, but a book about this movement that we're part of that really is happening all around, certainly around our country and in many other countries in the world. And in talking to people, we saw that there were a lot of different themes that kept coming up. So of simplification and using less and sharing more and belonging to our place and doing it ourselves. And as I was writing, I was like, this keeps coming up over and over again. And these are things that are values that we share. They're, again, back to like the permaculture principles, they're moral and ethical values that can help us really know if we're making a decision, even in small things in our lives, that really aligns with these values that we have. So the value of consuming less and using less and recycling more, you know, that can show up in so many places in our lives from where we do and don't spend money and where we make things ourselves or make do with what we have or repurpose something. And, you know, and some of these values come, again, back from our healing practices as the value of of embodiment, you know, just really learning to listen to our bodies and the wisdom of our bodies and having that inform what we do. You know, we're such a top-heavy, brain-heavy culture, and it sometimes just gets us into a lot of trouble <laughs> when we're not aligned between our our head and our hearts. And a lot of other people were just doing this. It was intuitive. It wasn't like I sat down and said, do you follow these principles? It just seemed from watching people and talking to them that this was what was happening. As you're observing and interacting with these folks, these patterns continue to arise. Absolutely, in all different ways. And when it came to the people who you interviewed, because that's one of the really nice portions of the book also, I think, because it shows the readers and people who are involved in this kind of work that there are other people who are succeeding, and not just in growing food on their own homestead, but also when it comes to social justice, healing the community with a lot of the different outreach programs, if you will, that folks are doing. And how did you come about finding the people you interviewed to include? We both have pretty extensive networks of community. So we thought about the people we know who were living the way we were living, who were inspiring to us. And we started talking to people. And we started also thinking, because it was for the book, let's see if we can represent lots of different angles. So let's find a homestead that's really, really small, for example. Or let's find a homestead of someone who's super concerned about water or waste or social justice, or food security. You know, there were different levels at which we started thinking about it. We started also noticing that we were mostly talking to white people. We really weren't happy about that. We were like, you know, Oakland is a really diverse community. So we really did a lot of outreach to try to find people who were living this way who were not from our mostly white circles. And so that was a that was an edge for us. We could see how so much more work needs to be done to break down the barriers of racism and of classism that still really separate us. So we got very intentional about that. And then some of it was just serendipity. I was at a gathering for a sustainability organization I work for in Sonoma County, and these people started talking to me, and they had started this organization where they were educating young men who were like former gang members into skills for the green economy and basically removing them from the juvenile justice system to teach them how to be part of the repair of the world. And I was like, you people are superheroes. Can I interview you for the book? So things like that would happen. It's just these great chance meetings with people who are doing beautiful work, which seemed to be, again, wholly aligned with the principles that we were talking about and the values and just this big work of earth repair that I feel is what the book is about, really. So they came from lots of different places, friends, inspirations, and now, when you mentioned the um, work in the community with trying to move children out of the juvenile justice system, 
Was that Ashel Eldridge? He's one of the people who's definitely working in communities of color and really helping motivate people in Oakland to hook into the transition movement and to really talk about transition in ways that actually make sense in Oakland. I think there's a great quote. He said, a few years ago, I connected with the transition movement and found it powerful and wanted to acclimate it to the culture in Oakland, but parts of the green movement are alien to the African-American community of Oakland. Some of our folks aren't even sure if they belong to the old economy, much less to the new one, he said. And while energy descent is a really powerful concept, it doesn't always play in Oakland where people are trying to get more power for themselves and working to get out of poverty. So he really spoke to the differences in different communities about how people are approaching this transition that our culture is going through. And, and that, that speaks real truth to me. It's like for some communities, the emergency has already happened. You know, like some of us are bracing for an emergency and for others, it's, it's already happening. And there's different needs in different places. So we really wanted to speak to that because one of the criticisms sometimes, certainly of the food movement and the local movement is that it's elitist and that it's it's people with privilege who are wanting to make sure their food is good and healthy, and that doesn't go far enough. And yeah, as I said, we come from this back to this background where social justice is important to us and something that we've committed to over time. And and we also feel that if, again, a permaculture principle, if fair share isn't part of what we're doing, if we're not equitably redistributing the wealth, it's not going to work. It's going to be the same imbalance that we currently suffer from, which creates a lot of social problems for all of us. So that's some of our thinking on it. The group I was talking about, though, is called the North Bay Institute of Green Technology. And these are the people who are training these young men into the eco-workforce. They're just amazing people. You know, they're basically working for nothing to help these people reclaim and revitalize their lives. It's just so powerful. So much what I think of as just love. I got invited to talk at the Northeast Permaculture Convergence. And they're really talking a lot about networking and relationships. And so one of the things I'm going to be really talking about is social permaculture, how we have to redesign our relationships for sustainability as well, that we have in so many ways in this culture the technology that we need to make the transition we have to make. And it's, it's happening at the grassroots level. It will eventually happen at the higher levels, although, of course, the government is in resistance to it because they're there to support the status quo. But even with all the technology we have, what we don't have is the capacity yet to get along with each other and to break down the relationship barriers that come out of these long-term social issues like racism and classism and sexism and all of these inequities that we want to diminish. And so how do we use the values of permaculture to start breaking down some of these walls and learning to communicate better? And I keep going back to some of these skills that I gathered as an artist and as a healer of really slowing down, observing and interacting with what's going on inside of ourselves. Kind of the inside is the same as the outside. We have this false dichotomy that like the world we see outside is not really mirrored inside of us, but that that really isn't true and that we have to tend to the soil inside and see what seeds we're planting and what trees are growing and what needs pruning internally as much as we do in the landscape that we're creating in our work as earth movers. So I think that that's a really important edge that that we all need to learn about. And so that was partly also in the book where it's really important for us to talk about how we take care of ourselves and how we take care of our relationships, that it's actually really easy to set up a gray water system compared to getting along with your neighbors. <laughs> It's really easy to grow vegetables, but it's not that easy to make inroads into communities that have historically been at odds with each other where there's a lot of suspicion or injury. So I think that's where we really have a we have a big work as people who care about the world is like 
how to really tend to our relations. I think that's how we extended the conversation in the book. Like a lot, we talk about conserving energy, but we don't talk about conserving our own energy. It's a good way to use our own energy. And a lot of these conversations really for the last 30 years of permaculture have been about the physical, the physical, the physical. How do we build this permanent agriculture? And a lot of the conversations, that idea of like the zone zero, zero, the self, and some of these other conversations. But I think it's the first thing that I really saw that moved us past just the groundwork was Rob Hopkins' transition movement, even though the conversation about permanent culture has been around for, I would say, 10 or 15 years from my readings. It hasn't really seemed to have come to the forefront until people have really started to communicate all these different ideas and what they're learning in their own regions. As we've taken the indigenous ideas of agriculture and integrated them into permaculture, now we're learning almost these indigenous social structures and ways of resolving conflicts and other issues, and now we're sharing that information, and that's really starting to grow and build. Was your story the one about stealing the chicken? Yeah. <laughs> I just thought that it was an adorable, poignant little story because I know my neighbor has an outdoor cat that comes onto our property and threatens some of the birds and other things, and I'm like, it has a role here. I, need, I just talked to it. We'll see what we can do. Yeah, I felt like it was important for me to acknowledge that I was as out of hand as everybody else. If I'm going to be sitting and saying, well, we need to do this and this, I, I need to be part of that conversation as well. Absolutely. In order to break down those barriers to be as open and honest and human as we can be, I really liked the integration of the non-material throughout the book and the self and the community and just simple things like walking your goats and how that can get you involved with the conversations with your neighbors. Yeah, and for us, the really essential theme in the book is how to do this with other people. Like the do-it-yourself ethic is good in terms of unhooking from the capitalist machine and not buying as much and seeing how much you actually can return to a state of production. But doing it with others, we think, is better. And just small examples like having a community tool shed instead of everybody owning one of everything or working in a community garden or you know, one of my gardens is in a friend's backyard. She didn't want a garden, and I needed this space. And we're like unlikely friends, and now we garden together, and she knows where the tomatoes go and how much kale she wants every year. And we've really grown something that would never have happened had I been just in my own backyard. So I think in terms of the transition movement and in terms of this piece of community resilience, it really does include generating better relationships with the people you live around. It's not just getting into a relationship with the plants and the animals that live in your place. It's the people you share your place with. And in cities, that's the biggest resource is human beings. We have a lot of people in cities, and no one's going to get to be self-sufficient in a city. It's not, it's not possible. It's nothing to even seek. We have to learn how to source things from lots of different places and with lots of different people and how to share. So. For us, that's one of the most specific to the urban environment thing. You know, it's like in a rural environment, you could potentially become self-sufficient if that was a goal, but not in a city. It's not how it's going to happen. I came to all of this from that back-to-the-land rural homestead idea, and it was the more that I had conversations with folks who were doing that, they would make the list of, well, this is the phone number for my tractor repairman. This is my welder who fixes my plow if it's broken. And realizing how many skills I would need and how many lifetimes it would take to build all that knowledge. There is a wealth of information among people in cities. And even though we love the book and we want people to learn from it, we really advocate that people find teachers. You know, there's a lot of really interesting and interested people who want to share what they know. And it's easy now to find a class in canning and fermenting or beekeeping or welding or 
a lot of these things, like people have this knowledge and they want to share it. And people love to show each other where to gather mushrooms and where to how to grow them. And, you know, there's just so much information you can learn from people who gather the information before you. It's wonderful to have a teacher. Was it learning from all those folks why you included all the projects that you did to give some people some jumping off points and some simple things that they could start with? Ruby is a top bar high beekeeper, and she evolved a way to simply build them. And I think she actually builds kits and sells them to people. That's one of her little side industries. So some of these things we knew, some of them we learned from others. Some of them were things that were taught through Ruby's Institute by other people. Like one of the ways I learned about the mushrooms was by taking the mushroom workshop at Ruby's and really talking to the man who was an expert mycologist and taught mycology at the local community college. And, you know, there were some people who have expertise in lots of different things, like Laura Allen, who's one of the founders of the Greywater, but was the Greywater Gorillas and then became Greywater Action. She's an expert in Greywater and has been instrumental in helping the laws change in California, where now it's legal to pipe the laundry water into the landscape. So she's a really important mover and shaker. So we talked to people, and then some of it was just things we had learned on our own, you know, through trial and error. Like, I made a laundry Greywater system that's totally rudimentary, but learned a ton just by doing it, how to do it and how the water worked and how it worked for me in my backyard. And so that was how we did it. And some of them were just things, well, I have a cold frame or I have a warm bin or everyone has to know how to do compost or here's how to start plants from seeds and how to take care of them until you get the fruit. Some of those are just seemed so basic to how we were living that we just had to include them. It really makes the book a nice introduction to both permaculture, urban homesteading. You have all these nice projects if someone wants to just take one chapter and do beekeeping or want to learn to ferment. And it's approachable throughout, which I really, really like, because a lot of books like this can become kind of technical or one-sided in a conversation that just keeps going and going. You're like, you lost me three pages ago. Well, you know, and in some ways, every single topic could be the subject of volumes. And they are. Like, you know, we refer people to Brad Lancaster and Art Ludwig, who we think of as the gray water, rainwater gurus of the West. And we say, if you really want to go in depth on these subjects, go get these books, because then you'll get a book that's just totally about how to deal with water in the landscape. So, you know, our book would have been huge. (laughs) It would have been 12 volumes, you know what I mean? Growing herbs and turning them into medicine, that's, of course, you know, volumes and volumes. That's a beautiful life study. So what we hoped was that people would see what they were inspired by or what piece of this they wanted to pick up and That was another thing we said is like, you know, everybody's not going to do all of this. Some people really care about growing their food. Some people don't want to do that at all, but they're really into the water piece or the recycling piece or natural buildings really exciting for them. So we wanted to give people different ideas and then a direction to go if they wanted to deepen their knowledge about any one of those things. And, you know, that's what happens in the permaculture certifications, right? We learn a lot about a lot of things and then to really become more masterful at them, we need to study more about, say, natural building or catching water in the landscape or whatever it is that we're really motivated to learn about. Use that kind of as a jumping off point then to decide what your specialty is going to be, whether it's teaching or designing or building. Exactly. We wanted to speak to people who already knew some things about this, but also people who didn't, you know. So our little primer of permaculture, it's very basic. It's very much like where you would begin to start thinking about these ideas. And of course, we know permaculture is this beautiful, vast, lifelong projects to understand all these things and to learn to think like a forest and to study the forest ecology and how we start being part of nature. But 
we really want to encourage people to start where they are and to start small and to not imagine that they have to do all this or that they have to do all this quickly. So even though we're in an urgent time where things need to change for all of us and are changing, we really advocate taking small steps and taking measured steps. And I was just talking with a woman today and looking at her property with her, and she has she has a lot of land, and she has more money than time right now. She imagines what's coming down the pike culturally, and she's like, I want to set myself up. You know, I want it to be better for me and my family here. And I'm like, get your water situation underhand and think about using that acre and a half that it's like her zone six. I'm like, maybe you want to put up a yurt and invite someone to farm that land. You know, maybe you want to make community where you live. Like, these are like down the road kind of projects. So it's just a way of thinking like step by step, how do we get to the kind of change that we want to see? But it doesn't happen all at once. It's something that I remind folks all the time is, you know, use use your concepts of zones. Find what's important to you and just start with something. Yeah, absolutely. Even if it's just to conserve energy, you take one day and you, you go through and you change all your light bulbs. It's take that first step. Don't feel overwhelmed by it. The organization I work for is called Daily Act, and the little tagline is because every action matters. And, you know, it's hard for us sometimes to think that the little things that we do actually make a difference, but they really do add up and they really do have effects. They ripple outwards and affect other people. And this is a true grassroots movement of cultural change. This is people really trying to be the change that we need to see. It's about not waiting around for government to make changes because that would be clearly suicidal. And step by step, going towards what we want to see. And this is the way all great changes have happened in our country. Every single one has come from grassroots social movements and of people stepping up and saying, this is how we need it to be. That's how the labor movement started and the civil rights movement started and the ecology movement started, you know, feminist movement, all of it. It's like from people standing up and saying, this is how we're going to do this now. So we can get very cynical, I think, that, oh, my little light bulb doesn't matter when Exxon is dumping oil into the water. And in some ways it's true, and in other ways it's just, it's just not the way to think. We have to, to imagine ourselves as powerful. We have a lot of division in the news and everything else when we start talking about the left and the right and divisive politics and everything else. But when I get out there and I'm just talking to people, whether we agree on our politics or not, when we sit down and talk about the impact that something like permaculture or just gardening can have, all those kinds of walls start to disappear. And it's like, oh, so. They do. People on both sides of the political divide are interested in the same things, for sure. Having the conversations between us is complicated sometimes because of how divisive things have become, but I think that that's also sometimes a function of the media and not so much how people actually feel. You know, people mostly want the same things. They want to have good, healthy food and safe places to live and good education for their children and a place to play and worship freely, and pretty much that's what people want. We may not all agree on how to get there, but we agree on what we want. It seems to be the case, yeah. If there's one thing that you would recommend to someone just beginning, what would it be? I always think that people should start with something that they love. So if you love the idea of growing food, that's where you should start. If you love the idea of designing a house out of natural materials, that's where you should start. You should check in about what you love and what you care about. And there's lots of simple projects in every realm. So, yeah, start with what you love. And that was Rachel Kaplan. You can find Rachel and her current work, Ecosomatic Action, at ecosomaticaction.com. Rachel's book, 
Urban Homesteading, remains one of my favorites to recommend for anyone seeking practical advice to move from an idea to a plan and from a plan into action without needing many resources or acres and acres of space to implement. You can find and pick up a copy of that book today at urban-homesteading.org. All these years later, I find Rachel's message filled with joy and hope for what we can do now and how the actions we take each day can ripple out into the future, that we are capable, powerful, and able to create amazing lives and a more beautiful world. In this conversation, I also hear the seeds of where my exploration of permaculture would go over the years, looking at permaculture from the inside out, where our transformation and design begins with and within ourselves, expanding my breadth of understanding about permaculture to look at other aspects, such as the social, entrepreneurial, or community basis for design. Taking David Holmgren's principle, observe and interact, and using that to look at how we can take community-oriented action to do something every day that changes the world. Is there anything that speaks to you from this conversation with Rachel? Is there someone in your life who expanded your understanding of what permaculture is or could be? This conversation with Rachel isn't the only one that can be hard to find. There are nearly 200 more which can mostly be found at thepermaculturepodcast.com. I'll be revisiting my favorites in the future and taking everything I've learned since these were originally released back in 2011, 12, and 13 and remastering them for re-release. If there are any episodes you recall that you'd like me to treat in this way so you can hear them again as if it were the first time, let me know. You can do so by leaving a comment in the show notes or by getting in touch with me directly, if you're a patron, you can send me a direct message on that platform. If you're not a patron, visit permaculturepodcast.com, click on Contact, and fill out that form to let me know what's on your mind. While you're there, take some time to see what else you haven't heard from the archives. Until the next time, revisit old lessons with fresh ears and new eyes, while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.